Thank you, team. Thank you all for singing out. Um, just a, if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke 4 in your Bibles, a quick update before we jump into the sermon on the Garrett family. Um, some of you may know, uh, some of you, most of you probably don't. Um, my family, last night we uh, got bit by the stomach bug. So, um, yeah, so we have some very sick children that uh, didn't, didn't fare well throughout the evening is a nice way to put it. Um, my wife it was up all night with them, and when I bounced out of bed at 3 a.m. after losing an hour, um, I relieved her for, I think, what was 45 minutes of sleep she got last night. And I say all that just really quickly to say a couple things. Um, one, y'all can pray for us, really heap them up on Jess. Uh, two, uh, behind every guy that gets up in this uh, pulpit or, or assists in worship or does anything in ministry, there's usually a woman who's a lot better than us. And, and she's making the wheels stay on the wagon in the rest of our lives so that we can get up here and do something like this. I was able to work on my sermon last night and this morning because she was doing unthinkably <laughs> terrible things with kids. I'm trying to keep them uh, well enough, I guess. Um, I say that also because when communion comes, uh, Jonathan Taylor, who is a, a teaching elder in our denomination, ordained minister, is going to administer the sacraments to you. And I'm not going to go near the plates that all of you are going to touch. And so if that's like weird for you that I'm just not participating, that's why. I think you'll thank me later when lunch stays put. Um, that's enough of that. All right, we're continuing our series on, on the mission of God's people, the people of God, and we're, we're asking the question, what is the church to be about? And we're looking at what God's up to in the world, and, and we're saying, well, his mission should be ours, so how do we, week in and week out in our lives, participate in what God's up to? And this week, we're, we're going to say that we're a people who proclaim the gospel, a people who proclaim the gospel. We'll look at Luke 4, just a few verses, starting in verse 16, to help us answer uh, what it looks like to proclaim the gospel. And he came to Nazareth, Jesus that is, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful moment uh, when your son stood up and read words about Messiah and said he was fulfilling it. Lord, help us to feel the impact of these words as we look at what it means to be people who proclaim the gospel. Help us to know how to do that. We pray you would shape us and change us, Lord. Uh, convince us of your love for us and send us out in your power. We pray you do that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a funny thing happens in language. Uh, sometimes words start off one way and then they end up another way. 
Uh, they mean one thing initially, but then they end up meaning something very, very different before too long. Over time, the words just kind of change their meaning, or we kind of lose sight of what the original intention was. Uh, looking up some of these, uh, one of the words that I thought was funny is uh, the word for a doctor or healer for a long time was the word leech, like leech. So if your kid got sick in the night, proclaim, I know all about that, you would call the next morning the good leech and have him come over and help your kids out. I was like, that's weird, that's funny, we don't use leech like that. Um, another one that's really great is the word silly. The word silly uh, used to mean blessed with worthiness. So guys, go home to your wives, or if you're a young man, you're trying to mack on a lady, just go up to her today, look her right in the eyes, like, girl, you look silly. <laughs> You don't even look silly. You are silly. It's a blessed with worthiness. It's a good way to do it, man. Try it out. See if it works for you. Um, no, seriously, words change meaning. I think sometimes, though, we can lose sight of the meanings of word because we use them too often. And I'm afraid uh, sometimes I, I fear that the gospel, the word gospel, is that way. Um, we, we say the word gospel a lot, but are we, are we sure we know what it really means and what all it implies? And so... So we think gospel, I think the general culture thinks it as a genre of music in the Grammys, uh, where anything that's spiritual or faith-based gets a tip of the cap and they give them an award. Um, other people, maybe if you've been in church longer, you may use it in terms of a biblical truth or something true about Jesus even. A gospel, right? That's what the gospel is. How to, how to avoid hell and get to heaven. The gospel. But is that what it really is? Is that, is that what the gospel is? Most of you may know, or some of you may not, but the word in, in the original Greek is euangelion, which means good news, good news, or a good proclamation. And this is what the gospel writers were proclaiming, that, that something newsworthy had happened. Um, that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15.1. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you now stand. There was news. Now, that word that's used by the gospel writers and, and by Paul would have had a context, in, in its context, an understanding. They would have known how it was used in that day. And here's how it typically was used. A king has won a decisive victory and is now the ruler of a territory. He would send his heralds out into the land to tell everyone that he is, in fact, the Lord of all. It would have been good news. Octavian has defeated Mark Antony. He is now Lord of the Roman Empire. And that's how they would have proclaimed it, to all the ends of the Roman provinces. They would have said, good news, euangelion, Octavian is Lord of the Roman Empire. That's, that would have been the way they would have thought of it. That's how it was used in that day. And so if it's news like that, it's a proclamation that the earliest gospel writers and also the Apostle Paul and his company thought that they were bringing to people, then I would argue it's very important for us to understand a few things. Why is the gospel news and why is it good? Why is the gospel news and why is it good? So let's jump in. What exactly is news? If your name isn't Greg Suskin, you probably haven't thought about uh, conceptually about the idea of news very often. Um, you, maybe you're not just uh, working on, like, what exactly is news? Let me philosophize about this. Philosophize a word? Probably not. Um, but anyways, let me think about that for a little while and, and, and see what news really means. So let's do it. Let me give you a formula that will help you understand what exactly news is. 
Here's what news, particularly good news, is. There's, there's an event or a development that takes place, and it enters into an old story that already existed. And because it's good, it points to a bright hope and future that has yet to be realized, but is surely going to happen. As a result of that, we live in the present moment differently than before we got the news. That was a lot. I'm going to say it again. All right. There's an event that takes place, a new development that takes place into an old story. It points to a bright, hope-filled future that hasn't been realized yet, but will surely take place. And as a result, we live differently in the present moment. Let's, let's give an example. Um, say someone comes up to you, a friend or someone you know, um, and they, they, they come to you and they say, my daughter's getting a heart transplant. All right? So there's an event that has taken place, right? But it assumes an old story. And that old story is what? The old story would have sounded something like, my, why is she so unhealthy? Why, why is she sick all the time? She seems so tired. And we go to the doctor and we get tests. And after the end of all these testing, we find out that she, her heart isn't, isn't good enough to sustain life. And then the fear comes in that we're going to lose our child and, and that the days we're going to have with her are numbered. And, and there's worry and, and there's, you're sick with fear. And then, then after all this waiting and fear-filled days, this event happens. There's a suitable donor. Uh, there's a surgery that can take place. And, and, and what has really changed in that, that parent's life in that moment? Nothing, right? I mean, th their daughter's still sick. She still has a bad heart. She still needs all these things. But the event has happened. They've secured the donor, and the surgery is on the calendar. It's going to happen. And so what they can do is begin to hope again. Things that they wouldn't let themselves do before, they can do now, like imagine school and activities, and, and maybe even imagine graduations and wedding days. Things that would not have been true or possible now are true and possible. And so they live differently. They prepare for a heart surgery. They prepare for the recovery because they have the hope that's set before them. That is how news works. That's how the gospel, the good news works too. The good news says that something has happened and it breaks into an old story. It was alluded to in the passage we read earlier, right? As a matter of fact, Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. This would have been a 600-year-old prophecy that was given to the people of God that was still being read in the synagogues in Jesus' day, and he broke in and read it, but what does he say about the passage once he finishes? It's been fulfilled. Okay, so if it's been fulfilled, that means that there was an old story. There was something that needed fulfilling leading up to that, right? There's, a, there's an old story at stake. And Isaiah would have been part of that old story, but he wasn't the beginning. And if you're going to appreciate the gospel, and, and at Westminster we say one of our values is that we'll be gospel-saturated, down to the bone, we're going to know the gospel, all the way through and through it, it'll affect everything, then you've got to know the old story that the good news breaks into if you're going to appreciate the news for what it is. And so what's that old story? Let's go through it. God created everything good. Everything perfect, everything wonderful, and in stunning harmony, it all exists. And yet his, his, his most wonderful part of his creation, the ones that were made in his image, rebel against him. High-handed treason. They think they can do a better job of being God than he can. And so they sin. And in doing so, they break the covenant they had with God, 
and God issues the covenant curses on them. He, he curses the man, the woman, and the ground, right? It's important to remember that, which basically means this. Everything feels the effects of sin entering the world because the brokenness that came when mankind rebelled against God. Everything, all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin because of mankind's rebellion. Um, when I was in St. Louis, I was, uh, <laughs> I was writing a, a paper one day, and like most of my papers, it was due the next day. Um, so I decided to get started on it. Um, I, I went to a coffee shop that I loved, great coffee, free refills, and they had this awesome upstairs area that was usually pretty quiet. So I decided I was going to go upstairs and work on my paper. I got there early at 7 a.m., but I was surprised to find that someone was already in there with me. Uh, there was a guy in the corner who had set up somewhat of an art studio in the coffee shop that day. Uh, canvas was up, all these different paints were out, and he had already begun working early in the morning. Now, fascinated, I watched him, which only distracted me from my paper writing, and, and he was really good. He was gifted, um, working tirelessly all day long. Did, I don't think I ever saw him break. I don't even think I saw him drink coffee. Um, so he was just going at it. Uh, he, would, he would paint a little, and he would work on just a part of it. He would step back. He would look in really close detail. He might make just one little meticulous stroke or two. Then he would spread some color, and he was making this wonderful landscape. It was unbelievable. And I couldn't believe how it was taking shape before my eyes over the course of the day. Well, about 4.30, something I never could have anticipated happening did. I was, I was wrapping up my paper. I was ready to put it, put it to rest. I had no good thoughts left to contribute to this idea. And as I was finishing up, I noticed he sat down and was just looking at his painting. And I was thinking, man, he's done. And I couldn't believe how beautiful it was, how, how detailed it was. And then he did something I couldn't believe. He took his left hand and he splatted it down in the middle of a bunch of black paint. And then he just took it and ran it across the painting that he had worked on all day long. And then he took both hands and he did it again and started just raking his hands across the painting that had taken him all day long. And he smeared it and rubbed it on it until you could barely see just the slightest pieces of the painting that he had worked tirelessly on all day. And then he sat down and he just looked sad and he looked at it. Every part of me wanted to ask, but I didn't. And I'll never know why he did what he did. But I'll tell you this, at a cosmic level, that's what God felt. That's what God felt during rebellion. His perfectly, meticulously created world and the people in it were marred by sin in every way. The only difference is he hadn't done it. His creation had rebelled against him and done it. It hurt. The good news is God doesn't give up on his creation as it rebels against him and ruins everything, the people in it anyways. Um, instead, God, we learn this. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he made. He decides he's going to redeem it instead of getting rid of it. And in his redemption, he's going to call people to be his agents that will live according to his ways and worship them with their hearts. And slowly, he'll begin to undo all the hurt and sorrow. They'll be agents of shining light in the midst of deep darkness right? That's the call of people, of God, the Israelites. But we see a problem. God's people, just like Adam and Eve, reject him. They rebel against him. They worship other gods. And, and the people who are supposed to be agents of redemption are obviously in need of redemption themselves. 
They need a Savior just as much as, as anyone before them. And so, this story of how God's going to restore his creation, of how he's going to right all the wrongs, how he's going to take enemies of his, rebels, and make them friends, and even more so, family. It, this story is longing for a climax and an ending, a happy ending. And, and for centuries, the story lingers, and you wonder, how is God going to do it? And it's in this backdrop that Jesus says, something's happened. I've got good news. It's in this backstory that Paul comes in proclaiming the gospel, good news. Something has happened. There's an event that's entered into the old story. It's news that we proclaim. Now, here's where we get it wrong. Uh, we can turn the central message of Christianity sometimes, and we can turn it away from news, and we can turn it into advice. Advice, good advice. Um, things like, here's how to live a better life. Here's how to have a healthy marriage. Uh, here's how to pray. Here's better techniques for parenting or, or being a better wife, husband, friend, boss, employee, whatever it is, right? Is we, we, we make the gospel about advice, and now the truth of that news has implications in all those areas. I'm not denying that. But our central message is never what we must do. It's what's been done. What happened? That's the central message of the church if we're going to be proclaiming a faithful gospel. Also, we can take Christianity and we can treat it like a philosophical option, um, like a, an, an option for a good religious experience as part of your life, right? We, we, we think we need to present it that way sometimes to others. Um, can you imagine, though, uh, let's take the way I said the gospel was used back in the day and imagine if it was applied that way. So you're in Rome, first century. A herald of, of, the, of Caesar comes, and he comes up to you, and he walks up and says, I'd just like to ask you real quick, how's, how's your imperial experience been lately? How you liking the empire? Feeling good about it? Well, let me tell you about Octavian. You want to try a little Octavian? He's awesome. You're going to like it. He has aqueducts. He's got plans for a road. It's going to be great. Why don't you discard any uh, imperial experience you might have tried before, and I think the best fit for you is going to be an Octavian experience. That's ridiculous, right? That's not how the heralds came. The heralds came and said, Octavian is Lord, pay taxes. That's basically how that, that, that story went, right? He, this is true. It just happened. He won the battle, and now you're subject to him. That's how Paul comes with the gospel. And if we're going to proclaim the gospel, look, this should give you courage. You don't have to worry about getting into some philosophical argument with somebody and being proved to be false. You can't be false. It just happened. Like, you're telling the true story of what went down. Like, there's no other story. And so when you go, go with boldness to tell people about Christ. He is the king. Paul said it. Jesus said it about himself. The king has come, and this is good news. Why is it good? Why is it good? Well, I think this passage tells us a lot about why Jesus' coming was good news. Uh, you have to get into the hearts and minds of the people that day in the hometown synagogue of Jesus in Nazareth, um, who had been opening the words in that, in that town for a long time and reading the words of Isaiah. And these words, when you read them, they sound hope-filled, right? But here's the thing. 
600 years have passed since Isaiah wrote those words. 600 years have gone by since, since the Messiah was promised. Since the prophets whispered about one who would come and make everything right. One who would come and, and take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh that can obey God and be agents of redemption. 600 years had passed since the prophets had whispered that one would bind up all the brokenness and where God's people had failed, this one would succeed. And, and so if hope deferred makes the heart sick, I might argue that the people in the synagogue might have been sick of hearing about this. It might have been hard for them to hear about a Messiah that just doesn't seem to ever come. But then Jesus comes. And he reads these words. And he tells them, once and for all, it's been fulfilled. What is he bringing? Look at what he says. First and foremost, the good news, the gospel, he says, is to the poor. He's proclaiming it to the poor. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that the rich aren't invited or included, right? That's not at all what's intended here. Put yourself in the shoes of the people in Nazareth. They are people from a poor village in the middle of a poor country that is under the thumb of a foreign, wealthy, powerful, and influential empire that's a long ways off. They are used to being overlooked, overlooked, forgotten, kicked to the side. Their, their concerns are not that important. They're discardable in the eyes of Rome. That's how they felt, completely worthless and unworthy, and always used to getting trampled on by the mighty empire of Rome. So to hear that the good news was for them meant that they were just included. The rich always know they have a seat at the table, but the poor wonder all the time. And this gospel is for the poor. And, and, and I love that about the gospel, that it's for everyone. For the most discardable and the most forgotten, the gospel comes to you. Uh, one of my favorite songs uh, lately is a song called Mercy uh, by Chris Renzema. Great song, you should look it up. Um, listen to this line, the first line of the song. It says, the reject, the dropouts, those used to being passed by, the addicts, the burned out, who've lost their ways so many times. There's room at his table for you. There's room at his table for you. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know enough of y'all to know that there's things true about you, whether it's things you've done or things that have been done to you, that makes it hard to believe that Christ could truly love you. It makes it hard to believe that the gospel could really be true for you. You feel like unworthy in some ways because of, of, of your past or because of your present, because of your sin struggles, and I don't know what it is that causes you to feel unworthy, but the good news is the gospel comes to the poor. It comes to the person that feels unworthy, and this is something I've found to be true, and I see it all throughout the gospels. The more unworthy you feel, the more blown away by Jesus you'll be when you realize he loves you to death. The more unworthy you feel, the more blown away you'll be by Jesus' love for you when it finally drops down into your heart that he loves you, that you're his. 
He doesn't just proclaim the good news to the poor, though. There's more to it. He proclaims liberty to the captives and to the oppressed. We see it twice in this. Uh, So freedom, liberty, release from bondage is a big part of what Jesus is up to. Um, In Isaiah's day, when this passage was originally written, that would have been obviously felt to mean the people who were in Babylon captivity will be released and brought home. But in Jesus' day, none of God's people were in captivity in any real, like, political way. So he must be talking about something else. And, And we know the full story, right? He comes to free us from a greater captor than Babylon or Egypt was to his people. He comes to free us uh, from our sins that hold us captive. In the days of the Egyptian captivity, uh, every Israelite would have had the same story, and it would have sounded something like this. We are slaves in Egypt. We're hopeless. The captivity we experience marks our lives more than anything else. And then a great event happened. And they would be able to say this. They would say, but not any longer. God, through mighty acts of power, has hammered our captor, pounded him into the ground, and we are no longer slaves. What's true of us is we are the liberated people of God. He loved us enough to save us. He loves us still. We are his. The truth that Jesus was saying there when he says he's here to liberate and captives and oppressed people is this. If you're in sin, if you don't know Christ, the truth is that captivity marks your life, and there's nothing more true of you than that. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're no longer marked by captivity to sin. You're no longer marked by bondage to sin. You no longer have to sin and act out of your sinful impulses, but rather the thing that's most true of you is you've been liberated by God through the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of his son where he brought all dead things to life and he's making things that were hopeless and lost, he's, he's making them alive again. And that's true for you. You're no longer a captive, but you're the liberated people of God one by the blood of Christ. He loved you enough to die for you. He loves you still. That's your story. That's good news. But not only that, he brings sight to the blind. If you take a, if you take a reasonable look at Jesus' ministry, it shows that he cares deeply about blind people. He just does. Um, he cares about people that have physical blindness and spiritual blindness. As a matter of fact, Mark does a great job at kind of balancing those two. He'll show uh, stories um, where Jesus heals a blind person, and then the next story is how his knuckleheaded disciples just don't understand what Jesus is all about. And so in doing that, putting them next to each other, he's saying, hey, there's spiritual blindness. I'm going to heal you of that. And there's, there's physical blindness. There's brokenness, and I care about that as well. And, and I think what we see as Jesus' ministry goes on and on is the real physical brokenness of this world and the spiritual brokenness of this world are both objects of his great concern and his redemption is big enough to rescue us from both. That's important. That's important. That means Jesus cares about a homeless person He wants to put a roof over their head, but he also cares about people that need to realize he's their refuge, their place to go 
for, for shelter from this crazy world and how it wears on us. Um, Jesus cares about hungry people. He wants to put real food in their bellies, but he also cares that they, that they taste and see that he is good and that they get the bread of life that satisfies us forever. Uh, they, he cares about thirsty people. He wants, he wants them to have clean wells to get clean, drinkable water out of, but, but he also cares that we taste the living water that'll quench our thirst forever. He cares about our spiritual needs and our physical needs. Um, I love this line from the song, and the great hymn writer Isaac Watts uh, wrote a song you're all very familiar with. Um, if you know my oldest son's name is Watts, and so I love this hymn writer so much that I named him after him. Um, but Isaac Watts wrote many great hymns, but he wrote a, a hymn called Joy to the World that you're familiar with, I'm sure. We sing it at Christmas. And my favorite line out of it is this. Jesus, it says about Jesus, he's come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. So everywhere sin touched and broke it, Jesus is making it right. And if that's true about our head, Christ, then guess what? That should be true about the body. That's another way we proclaim the good news. Yes, we tell the news that Christ has come, and then we live it in this world as we work to redeem the brokenness that's all around us, spiritual and physical, both all the time. We have great hope. Something that most assuredly happened has happened it's, it's holding out a bright and beautiful future for us. Um, and we can live differently in the meantime. Uh, my wife and I each have one tattoo. <laughs> one tattoo. Mine I got when I was 19. I just pledged a fraternity and all my pledge brothers were like, eh, let's go get a tattoo. And I was like, yeah, sounds like a great idea for a Tuesday. And so we slapped this random Greek phrase sort of thing on our ankles, and, and less than a year, I was like, did I want that on my body forever? Uh, um, Low-key regrets. So years into our marriage, a couple of years in, Jess uh, decides she wants a tattoo. So immediately I discourage that, and I say, you just don't want anything on your body forever. <laughs> and she said, no, I do. But I want something that'll remind me of the truest things. I want something that's that's awesome that I can look to again and again and help me. And so we thought about it for a while, and after a while, we, we determined that we would put in, in the Greek, in the original language, because that's just cooler than English, uh, we decided we put in the Greek, on her arm where she could always see it, uh, two Greek words, pantakina, pantakina, all things new, all things new. In Revelation 21, we get a picture of how the end is going to go down, and it's this. Jesus is seated on his throne, and it says, Behold, the one on the throne says, I am making all things new. So all the tired, hurting, broken, busted, um, hopeless situations in your life, all the the things that you're longing for healing, but you're seeing it get worse, all those things that are just old, one day our story will be, it's all been made new. With new bodies, new, new minds, new, new whole 
uses that can't sin anymore will sit around the table with the king and be new forever because he's done that for us. He secured it on the cross and in his resurrection. He holds out that hope for us that's always going to be true. In between, we get to live in light of the fact that he's won a glorious redemption for us and we get to be agents of redemption. That's good news. That's the gospel. And we proclaim it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us. Help us, Father, because we have calloused hearts that have a hard time believing, believing that, that you could redeem us, that you are the one who can ultimately uh, make all things right that have, that have been broken and busted by sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, that you would be an agent of, of redemption. We ask that you would continue to make us whole and use us in this project of redemption that you have going until you fully and finally make all things new. Uh, would you do that, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.